Okay, Psalm 91. And again, I would like to read the psalm in its entirety as we begin. Follow along with me if you would. There is no inscription. And so it almost continues right from Psalm 90. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers. And under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand. But it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, and young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet, because he hath set his love upon me. I will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Out of this precious psalm, may we bring forth Treasures of darkness, Lord, may those things that the Holy Spirit would illumine guide us and help us to rightly divide this psalm, to uh, put it before us as, as an encouragement that you are our salvation, you are our refuge and our strength, our high tower, our fortress, and our buckler and our shield. May we understand better what that means. Help us, Lord, as we walk with you and walk for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 91, I believe, gives us the Bible's antidote to fear and worry, to anxiety, and all those things that would plague us and and remove our mind from its anchor in God. If I had a thought that I would weave through Psalm 91, it would be trusting in the Lord, learning to trust in Him more, learning to trust in Him better. Trusting in the Lord because he's my refuge, because he's my fortress. I don't want that word refuge to become trite. The idea of God being our refuge is woven throughout the Psalms. It's one of the things that drives us as 
as frail, finite beings to the Psalms to remind us that the Lord is our refuge. How many Psalms come to mind when we think of the word refuge? Psalm 91 ought to be the top of the list when we think of the Lord being our refuge. But Psalm 91 helps us understand a little bit further in what that refuge is and that he is also my fortress. He is my strong tower. He is that place where I am safe and I can abide in him. The dangers that plague this life are real and they surround us. And uh, there can be dangers that threaten us, threaten our well-being. There are dangers that we might even imagine and we can get worked up about that. And it can plague our mind, it can plague our heart. And so through all generations, Psalm 90, verse number one reminds us, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. There's never been a time when God's people haven't had access to his word. It's a fundamental truth about the inspiration and the preservation of scripture. And so through all generations, we have this truth. We have an antidote to the fears that plague us, to the anxieties that might overwhelm us. And it's through, if you look at verse number four, he shall cover thee with his feathers under his wings, shalt thou trust his truth, shall be thy shield and buckler. These, these truths, this truth of the promises that God will watch over and protect those that are his own. And so a lot of metaphors, a lot of imagery through this psalm, beautiful language. We talk about the snare of the fowler and and the feathers and the wings and all these pictures flood our mind. But the theme that's dominant through this is a theme that's, that's throughout the Psalter, and that is the fact that God is king over all creation, over all the universe. And so... A psalm of refuge tied to the idea that God is king. Let those two be solidified in your mind. Because what higher refuge could you claim than the highest, the holiest, the most high God who is El Shaddai, who is the Almighty only two times throughout the Psalter will you find the name Almighty referenced. One of those happens to be here in Psalm 91. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. I will declare, he is my rock. Psalm 92, if you look at verse number uh, 15, he says, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. So you see Psalm 91 is placed between these two Psalms in your Psalter for a reason. He's been our dwelling place for all generations. He is the king. He is our refuge. And therefore, I will declare that he is my rock. And then all the way up to Psalm 94. If you look at Psalm 94, woven throughout that is the idea that he's my fortress. He's my protection. He's the rock where I hide. If you look at Psalm 94 and verse number 22, we read these words, but the Lord is my defense. My God is the rock of my refuge. So this is a theme that is so closely connected with the idea that God is king because we're right on the heels of some royal psalms, some kingship psalms. In fact, there's a whole chain of them woven from here 
to Psalm 103, really. Psalm 93, Psalm 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, all center around the idea of the Lord's kingship. Yes, that's Psalm 95 and 99, all of them. Not just as to where they are in the Psalter, but they're also tied to where it's at before Psalm 93. It's a short psalm, it's only five verses. The Lord reigneth, he's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherefore hath he girded himself? And so what we're looking at in Psalm 91 is the heart of the answer to the question, Lord, what about your promises? And I'm going back to this because we've been hitting this ever since Psalm 89. Psalm 89 left us reeling. Lord, are your promises true? Lord, are you really going to do what you promised David? Will you have a, a son to sit on David's throne forever? You promised that to him back in 2 Samuel 7. But as of where they sit in Psalm 89, there is no promise of that ever happening. And so, Lord, is your word reliable? By the time we get through this, we're saying with the psalmist, the Lord's my rock. The Lord's my defense. Yes, his word is true. I don't have to doubt his word. And so, refuge kingship. Put those two ideas together when you're looking at this section, especially in the Psalter. Lord, where's your said? Where, where's your where's your mercies that are new every morning? Where is your loving kindness, to use a synonym? The Lord is king. Blessed are all that take refuge in him. And who is your refuge? That's my question to you today. As we look at Psalm 91, I I know I raked it over, but I, I tried to emphasize what I'm going to bring out in the message. And hopefully you picked up somewhere along the way that I was emphasizing certain pronouns to draw your mind to uh, the, the person that is represented speaking throughout the psalm. And so that's how I'm going to break it down into three major sections. And we might talk about where to divide it between verse 2 and verse 3. Uh, I'm not going to be hard-nosed and say you have to cut it after verse number three. I did, and I'll tell you why. Because when you look at the parallels that are in the psalm, with the verses that I've broken down, you have three parallels to each thought. And so I'm hanging my structure on three parallels. If you do it differently, you have to have two parallels in the first part, and then that lost parallel goes down into the bottom, which is okay in music, right, Brother Mike? Because in a song, maybe you can think of a, an example in the hymnal. I don't think uh, Under His Wings is a, is a good example. Yeah, that one's, that one's not either. But if you, look, if you look in your hymn book, you'll find eventually where you have a note that carries over and you only have two, uh, in the, you only, you only have two counts in the first part of it, and it's called a pickup note. Okay, if you want to divide it where you have two parallels in the first section and one parallel at the end, you can just say you have a pickup note, okay? If you want to divide it like that, you can do that with Psalm 91 and have a pickup note, and I'll let you get away with that. Uh, 332 would be an example of that if you want to look at the musical example. I don't know where that came from. Oh, look, Psalm 91, verses 1 through 3. I think that's of the Lord. Maybe I should read this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Standing somewhere in the shadows. Do we know this song, Brother Mike? We've never sung that in our church. 
I'm going to give you some homework. Let's learn this one. I'm interested in it now. I really didn't know it was in our hymnal until this meeting. But I'm looking for an example, and I found one here with a pickup note. And it happens to be Psalm 91. I think we need to learn that one and sing it. Amen? Uh, so you can look and see there's an extra count that needs to be given somewhere along the way there. 332. It's a good Psalm 91 psalm. Structuring the Psalms. As we go through the outline, you'll notice I broke it down into three parallels, and that'll be divided up as we go. The first that I would draw your attention to is seen in verses 1 through 3, or if you want to pick up note, verses 1 through 2. There we go. Verses 1 through 3 are three parallels. The first three parallels, uh, technically it's, it's a stanza and then an extra parallel to the psalm. But it's a third person declaration of God as refuge. What is it? A third person declaration. In other words, the psalmist is saying this about that third person, and that third person is God. Read it with me and you'll see that. He is that first, second, or third person pronoun. Bring out some grammar. I know I'm breaking the brain, making you think about English and grammar day. How can I do that? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I don't get thrown off here. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. So there's some first person in there, but I want you to notice the third person declaration. I will say of the Lord, He is. So who are we looking at? We're looking at this third person uh, idea, and that is that God is refuge. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that this third person uh, aspect, this is God, this is my refuge. Are you with the psalmist so far? He's saying this entity, this person, is where I find safety. I will declare this. He is my refuge. Today's also a day for D.L. Moody, if you haven't noticed. I had a quote from D.L. Moody in my morning message. There's a quote that I didn't know about from D.L. Moody in your bulletin. And then now I selected a quote from D.L. Moody for the backdrop of the sermon today, by the way. So uh, we get D.L. Moody, and we're learning some music along the way as well. Under his wings. And the quote from D.L. Moody is profound. The only place you're going to be safe for all eternity is in this third person that the psalmist is referencing. It's in Christ. It's in our refuge. Now, as we read uh, through the psalm, he says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the, what are the next words? El Elyon. The Most High. Connect that. That's the first name. Dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Did you know the Most High has a secret place and you can go there? Shall abide under the shadow of who? Second name. The Almighty. Again, uh, the only other place that the Almighty is used in the Psalter is in Psalm 68, uh, verse number 14. It says, When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. The hill of God is the hill of Bashan. So in that Psalm, we're talking about the King. We're talking about the Most High. We're talking about El Shaddai. We're talking about the Almighty. If we know our Old Testament, we know who appeared to Abraham was known as the Almighty, as we're getting ready to study in Exodus up until the burning bush 
by Jehovah, he was not known by that name. Up to Exodus 3. To Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, he appeared to them as the Almighty. That was his name to Abraham. That was his name to Isaac. That was his name to Jacob. And then when God delivered Israel with a mighty hand out of the bondage of the Pharaoh in Exodus, under Moses, he reveals himself, the I am that I am. And we get to learn a little bit more of who he is in an intimate way. And so uh, Psalm 68, verse number 14, that's a psalm that's calling upon the Lord as king. If you go back to Psalm 68 again and look at verse number 24, they have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my king in the sanctuary. Again, tying the idea of kingship here to the psalm. Uh, the Lord is king, so he's going to use his power. Psalm 68, verse uh, verse number 28. What's he going to use his power for? Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. What's he going to do? He's going to bring victory by his strength. He's going to bring victory by his power because he is the king. So let's put it together. Since the Most High, since the Almighty is my shelter, is our shelter, if you can say that with me, then that brings a certain amount of confidence, doesn't it? We ought to feel uh, emboldened. We ought to feel loved. We ought to feel so many things about the Almighty, this place of safety. We can be confident that when we get to this place, he's our refuge, you're going to be able to, to lay your head down at night and rest in him. You're going to be able to pillow your head in safety and not worry about every little noise that's made and, and not be taken away and distracted by all these things and, and have to go check the locks on the doors every time we turn around or, or check this and make sure that that was taken. He's your refuge. You just, you just rest in him and he's going to take care of everything for you. He's the Almighty. There's nothing too hard for him. There's nothing outside of his purpose. He's the Most High. The devil can only do what he allows. He's, he's limited. I'll get to Satan later on in the psalm, hopefully, if I have time to do that, uh, because he'll come into play here with some instances. But we can trust in him. We can trust in him even when the dangers of life threaten us. And think about it. It only takes... Just one pivotal moment, and it seems like everything in life is turned upside down. Just one little thing can change it, and it changes everything. And God, He's stable, and He's solid. And so even when circumstances might change, even when uh, pain of life or, or dangers that would come at us in this life threaten us, we know we have a constant, we have a stability, we have a surety. In this refuge, because he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In this world, this life will ebb and flow, but he remains unmovable. He's always a place that we can go to, even when we're in danger. And so the psalmist is telling us we can truly know the Lord as our refuge. Our, uh, a refuge is a, is a place of safety. And so we can say with confidence in us, I am trusting in him. 
What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in chariots? Are you trusting in money? Are you trusting in what's in the bank? Are you trusting in your plans? Are you trusting in your strategies? Are you trusting in somebody else? Are you trusting in anything? Where is your trust? The psalmist says, he's my refuge. That's who I trust in. And that's where I lean. That's a third person declaration. God is my refuge. He is my refuge. That third person, I'm telling you all about him. That's where I find safety. That's where I find my needs met. Notice as we move through the psalm, again, I'll read verse three. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers under his wings. Shalt thou trust. Notice with me secondly in this psalm that there is a second person description of God as refuge. Okay, so a first person, uh, sorry, I messed that up. A third person declaration. What's the third person declaration? God is my refuge. Second person description. Don't get them confused. I'm giving you some things to hang your memory on. The third person is what? A declaration. We are affirming that God is our refuge. Now in the second person, we're going to find a description of what that refuge looks like. And it's described here in vivid detail. And notice the second person pronoun, thee, thy, thine, thou, all those T's that the King James translators help us out understanding second person. It's all right here for you. So don't let the Elizabethan throw you off. Read it for the beauty that's here and let it stand as written. He says, he shall cover thee with his feathers. Under his wings shalt thou trust. What's the description of this refuge? Well, it's like the feathers of a hen. I think it was mentioned in the morning service that the Lord takes us under his wings and, and he guards us. I grew up with chickens and I don't know about you, but I've seen them when they've hatched and I've seen them follow mama around. They know where the safe spot is. And boy, don't you ever get near a, a mama hen. <laughs> I mean, you might not have any eyeballs by the time you're done because she's going to come get you if you start threatening her babies. And so they know where to, those chicks know where to go for safety. And the same idea with God. He's going to watch over us. He's going to protect us. He's not going to let any harm come to us. Verses 4 through 7 show us that in this description, this second person description of God being our refuge, there's no need to fear. Let's describe what that looks like. There's no need to fear. Surely, as sure as I can say to you, he's going to deliver you from the snare of the fowler. How many of you uh, know what the snare of a fowler is? What's a fowler? Language we might need to bring up to speech for us today. A fowler is somebody who catches birds. A fowl is a bird, and so you put a snare down and you trap birds. Uh, trapping trailmen is a good uh, skill to know and learn for survival scenarios because you may have to do some trapping to eat to live. And, uh, and so uh, you put a snare down and this bird comes along. You can have different kinds of snares. You can have a deadfall snare. You can have a, a loop snare. You can have uh, all these different ways. But how do you get them into the snare? That's another thing. You want to try to make sure it's on a path that they readily travel. You want to make sure that uh, you know, there's things that they can see on either side that's kind of, kind of funneled them into that little trap. Notice what God says. He's going to deliver you. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare 
of the fowler. Can I say that I believe the fowler here is a picture of the wicked one? And we're told by Paul in Ephesians 6 that uh, the wiles of the devil, he has those fiery darts, and he, and he tries to tempt us and to lure us away from God's path, but also not just from the snare of the fowler, from those things that would try to entrap us, also from the noisome pestilence, noisome pestilence, vivid language. He shall cover thee with his feathers, under his wings shalt thou trust. Watch, he says, his truth shall be thy shield and buckler. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Now, I did some digging on this word buckler, and uh, it's the only place that it's used is here in this verse. And so we have to kind of look at maybe outside sources to help us understand what the word has a connotation to. Can I let you know the King James translators have nailed it here? A buckler, if you can understand what a buckler is, you're going to understand the sense behind this word. It literally means a wall, like a curved wall. And if you know anything about Roman warfare, they had what was called the turtle. You know, they would put all their, block all their big, long shields together, and they would form a shield wall. And this buckler is a shield that forms this wall. Let that imagery uh, move you to consider what the psalmist is saying. He shall cover thee with his feathers, so I'm covered over. And I'm trusting under under that. Nothing can get me there. I'm safe. But his his truth shall be thy shield and your wall, your buckler. There's nothing getting through this. Whether it's an individual, you know, if David wrote this psalm, uh, like the Septuagint attributes to him, I don't think there's precedent for that, but it could have been written by David. David knew all about bucklers. David knew all about shields. And they would have their armor bearers that would bear some of this for them. And you can read about how they would use their armor bearers. And so they would have these bucklers. They would make these walls, uh, maybe an embankment. You know, in the Civil War, they did a lot of engineering and uh, transformed the landscaping of the South in particular because of all the trench warfare they were engaged in. And they would build walls. They would build bucklers. And it would help ward off the enemy. It's a curved wall. Think about uh, Jerusalem when we were there. Uh, many cities throughout that area, if the city was safe, it had a wall around it. It was protected. And the walls speak of protection. Nothing's going to get through that because this is the Almighty's wall. This is the king. And, uh, I mean, what a portrait. There's no need to fear. Verse number five. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day. 24-7, this buckler is going to protect you. This wall is going to be your shield, nor for the pestilence. There's that word again, that walketh in darkness. Hey, when you can't see it, God's going to protect you from it. When you can see it, God's going to protect you from it. Nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. No matter when it comes, it can be going off all around you. And here you are underneath that shelter and you've got a shield and you're going to be okay. God's going to take care of you. Verse 7. You'll watch them. There'll be a thousand on this side, a thousand on that side. They're all going down, but you're safe. How in the world can that happen? If you're in the Lord, 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. I wonder how many of our soldiers have found this verse to be a good refuge to them in times of warfare. And can we apply this literally? I think there are probably circumstances where it was fulfilled literally. 
And soldiers would see this and they would go through the grief of watching their comrades or their fellow soldiers falling on either side. And yet the Lord watched over them and protected them. I think of men like Sergeant York. How many did he uh, watch go down? And yet the Lord delivered him and, and allowed him to be able to bring a great victory for uh, World War One. And we have all kinds of stories like that. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? And so if we were to come to this psalm and treat it literally, I mean, I'm a literalist, okay? I take the Bible literally. Please don't misunderstand me. But if I were to take this, you know, I'll just, you know, maybe tear this page out of my Bible and I'll fold it up and put it in my pocket and go and list and say, okay, I'm going to run out in the middle of warfare. I probably am not going to come home. I'm just saying, oh, you don't have enough faith. Okay, whatever you want to explain it as. But you understand what I mean? To take this and apply it literally is going to do the same thing. Well, I get ahead of myself. I'll give you that in a moment. Hold on to that thought. You'll see why I say that here in a moment. Because there's someone who wants us to wrongly divide the Bible. Okay? And if we wrongly divide it, we can do great damage and great harm. There's no need to fear. So let me describe this second person description of God as refuge. Number one, there's no need to fear, verses 4 to 7. Verses 8 to 10 show us that God is going to surely requite the wicked. He's going to, to bring vengeance on those that are wicked. He's going to set everything right in his time. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's part of the description of his protection. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. The judgment day is coming, and God will requite the wicked. Verse 9, because thou hast made the Lord, that's Jehovah, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. The second part of this description is that in the day of judgment, you're going to be safe when God rains his wrath down on the wicked. You're not going to be part of that number. And that's part of the description of how God watches over us that are His. He's going to requite the wicked. God will also protect us from harm. Verses 11 to 13. So this second person description of God as refuge shows us there's no need to fear. Surely God will requite the wicked. And God will protect us from harm. And this is what I've been looking to get to here. So read it with me, verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee or guard thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. That is striking. Why? Because if we fast forward from where this psalmist is writing, and we come to the life of our Savior, and we go to the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized, and then right after that, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And the purpose, the gospel writers tell us, is to be tempted of the devil. And so when the 40 days was ended, and he was in hunger, the Bible says, who came? Right on, right on cue. And he comes and he tempts the Lord three distinct times. The first, the first temptation 
uh, you know what it is. It's tempted because of his hunger to turn the stone into bread, make these stones into bread. And Jesus answers him with scripture, right? We go back to that and say we can combat the devil with scripture. But it was, it was in his heart, it was in his life, and it just came out of the well. He knew it. And he said, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. All of it. It's not just about me. It's not just about my physical limitations and my wants right now and where I can just magically turn this into something that is only going to benefit me. That, it's more than that. Get thee behind me, Satan. In another temptation, the Lord was taken up to a pinnacle. That's a high point in the city. And it's miraculous to think how all this happened and the devil has power to do these things. He took him up to this pinnacle and said, cast thyself down. And what did the devil do? Because Jesus had quoted the Bible to him. He goes to Psalm 91 and says, hey, you believe the Bible. You're taking this thing, you know, literally, right? Well, hey, why don't you just prove it here? Uh, come off of this pinnacle. Cast yourself down. Because the Bible says he'll give his angels charge over thee. They're going to hold you. You're not going to be destroyed down there. You can make it. You can live. You can jump off here. They're just going to carry you through. The interesting thing to me is that the devil didn't read the next verse. He stopped short. He only quotes the portion of Scripture that fulfills his purpose at the time. And be careful. Be wary of anybody who just quotes a verse and then tries to make theology off of it. You need context, okay? Uh, context is king. What did the devil leave out? He left out this part. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the... Now the serpent was more subtle than any piece of the field which the Lord God had made. Okay, you're with me. Okay, well, let's keep going. He says... And the young lion and the and the what? The dragon. That's revelation right there. That old serpent, the devil, the dragon that deceived them. That ancient snake. What a slippery serpent he is. And he's so boy. He knows how to take the Bible and cast doubt on it and to get you to doubt the word of God. But notice God's going to protect you from harm. So this is why I say you must. Be careful in how you handle the scriptures. There is a master of twisting. There is a master of deception. His name is Satan. And he will use and rest the word of God. Those that rest the scriptures, Paul warns us that they rest them to their own destruction. So it would be wrong. I'm saying, I'm telling you, this is a wrong way to approach the Bible. To take this verse to tear that verse out, fold it up in your pocket and stick it in there and go enlist and go out to the middle of the battlefield and say, oh, the Lord's going to protect me. I'm under his wings. And it, you might make it out, but you also might not. Why can I say that with confidence? Why can I say that with assuredness? Because when I go over and read passages like Hebrews chapter 11, it reminds me, we had a long list in the hall of faith that did see that deliverance, that physical deliverance here and now. And we go through all these Bible characters and we rejoice in all the victories that God gave. But then we come to part B. And you read it in that in the middle of a verse, it, it changes. And 
we begin to learn that there were some that didn't make it out unscathed. There were some that, as the writer of the Hebrews says, were sawn asunder for their faith. They perished at the edge of the sword. And so if we were to take this and limit it, like the devil did, to the scope of physical deliverance here, cast yourself off this pinnacle, he's going to protect you, then we have wrongly divided the word of truth. And we are not seeing what the Spirit has to say to us here because we're limited in this physical realm. There is a spiritual battle being waged, and the truth of the matter is that God will protect us from harm. What a portrait of God's providential protection over his children that we have painted here in these verses. He protects them from every trouble. Uh, the hunter's trap, the fatal plague, this writer said, from the unexpected attack of disaster, no evil, no plague coming near, and then even stubbing your toe on a rock. Yeah, protection is operative all the time, during the night, during the day, even when the brightest part of the day and the darkest part of the night is upon us. This protection has an offensive element to it because it ensures great victories over fierce lions, poisonous vipers, even though a thousand, no, 10,000 are dying on all sides, God's children will only see but not be touched by this trouble. How do we take this? What a mighty God we serve. He can deliver. And he promises that no harm will come to us. So let's look here at the first person demonstration of God being our refuge. God is our refuge. Now we move from the third person to the second person. The first person, or the third person was what? The third person was a declaration. He is my refuge, that third person. The second person was a description. He's going to keep you in this way. He's going to keep you in that way. He's going to watch over you like this. He's going to protect you like that. Second person description. Daytime, nighttime, from this, from that, all things in between. Now we move to the first person. And we see this narrowing down, the first person demonstration. So we've gone from a declaration to a description, and now what I've called a demonstration, because God shows up. It's first person. God comes on the scene, and he answers, and he promises, I will deliver. All this has been said about me, and, and it's been described how I'm the refuge. Now it's my turn to speak, the Lord says. And in this final strophe, God is speaking directly in the first person because he's confirming the truth that he is our refuge. Aren't you glad when God answers prayer? Right here we see an answer to the psalmist's prayer in this psalm. Psalm 90, verse number 14, if we look back to verse number 14 in the preceding psalm, he says, Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God answers prayer. And here he shows up in this psalm and he says, here's what I'm going to do. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. Who's the deliverer? God is. I'm going to do this. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. I see a fulfillment in that of Jesus Christ when he came out of the grave and he crushed the serpent's head, his feet were bruised, but he crushed the serpent's head. 
God did this, and he raised him up. Jesus Christ was raised up by the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, his own power and the Spirit's power. Because he had set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high. What does this deliverance look like? It's being set on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Do you see the first person? Demonstration. God is showing up. He promises to rescue. He promises to protect those that love and trust him. He promises to answer them when they call on him in times of trouble. Satisfy us early with thy mercy. And here God answers. I will reward you. I will give you long life. With long life will I satisfy. Satisfy us early. With long life will I satisfy him. And show him my salvation. What a beautiful picture. And here, God answers with a reward. So the question that we have to answer is, okay, Pastor, I'm trying not to get really confused here. How in the world am I supposed to use this psalm now? I don't want to be guilty of using it like the devil did. I don't want to misapply and misappropriate the scriptures and wrongly divide the word of truth and run out into a blazing battle and not come home at the end of the day because I took something and did something with it that is satanic. It's what the devil would do to the Bible. I don't want to do that. So what in the world am I supposed to do with this psalm now? Because it does promise protection. It does promise deliverance. How should I take this? Well, uh, you could try to take it literally. And um, good luck with that. Let me know how it works out. If we make God our refuge then if you take this literally, you're going to come away with the idea that your life is going to be trouble-free. No trouble. Hey, I promise right here. Yeah, it's no trouble. Um, it's not like that. And so I don't think the way to take this is absolutely verbatim, literally, that you can run out in the middle of a blazing field of battle and everything's going to be okay. Now, if God does that for you, praise the Lord. It's his doing. It's marvelous. I'm going to rejoice in that, but I'm not going to encourage or counsel somebody to go do that based off this verse. Does that make sense? Okay. So if we're if we're not going to take it that way, you know, because sometimes righteous people die young, Ecclesiastes seven fifteen. Sometimes uh, good people suffer tremendously, Job chapter one and two. Uh, sometimes they suffer for doing good. First Peter tells us that sometimes life is full of trouble. So to take it literally would do a disservice to the rest of the scripture. Okay, uh, perhaps maybe we should take it uh, eschatologically. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. Paul is using you know similar language to Psalm 91. He says uh, there that the Lord stood with me. When no man stood with me, the Lord stood with me. Remember his account there that he gave of that? And the Lord delivered him, right? And so maybe we could apply that to standing before the Lord and that he will be our shield. He will protect us in the day of judgment, as I referenced earlier. Are the promises of God, are, are they only good, though, for there in, in, in the judgment day? Is that the only time they show up? Can I not come to this psalm and find some semblance of hope and confidence that in this life I can see the good hand of God on me here before I have to go before that bar? Surely I think we can glean some encouragement that yes, God will work here and now just as he will there and then. So to limit it 
eschatologically, the only day of judgment would do a disservice as well. Can I just encourage you to use Psalm 91 to help bolster and facilitate your trust in God? Let this psalm resonate deep down in you that if you're in the Lord, you're going to be okay. Whatever the circumstances are, if your number is up and it's time for you to go, you're going to be okay. If he determines that you need to live longer than somebody else, you're going to be okay. Remember Peter asked, what about this guy over here, Lord? This was after the Lord came back and appeared to him by the seaside there and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? What about John? Lord, what's going to happen? He says, it's not for you to worry about that. Peter, you do what you've been called to do. And so let this psalm bolster your trust that wherever God leads you, if you're in the center of his will, you are, the, you are in the safest place you could ever be. He will shield you. He will watch over you. And let this psalm also encourage you, do not ever tempt God's providence. Think that through. If you run out blazing, you know, saddles, opening gun, and everything ready to take on the world and charge hell with a squirt gun based off Psalm 91, you might have a rude awakening. Don't tempt God's providence. I go back to our Savior's temptation. The devil was tempting him to tempt God's providence. Hence why he would turn around and say, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, quoting Scripture. Don't tempt God. Don't take his word and rest it to something that you think it needs to fit. Jesus responded in like manner with the scriptures, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That was his response to when the devil misquoted Psalm 91. Don't tempt God. We can learn a lot from that. In other words, the promises of Psalm 91, they have to be used in keeping with the teachings of the rest of Scripture. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, and know that God's going to work everything out to them that love Him for the good. And if we live our lives irresponsibly, then there's not going to be a shelter here because that's taking this out of context and not using the Scriptures the way that God intended them to. But if you'll come to this and let it bolster your trust in God, that he's going to watch out for you, that you're going to be okay if you're in him, then, friend, whatever God leads you to do, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. And, and don't worry about anything the devil can throw at you because God's going to protect you and he's going to watch out for you until he calls you home. Psalm 91 is a great assurance. If we're trusting in a sovereign God, if we're doing our best to live responsibly and not tempt God's providence or his or his leading, then most assuredly we can say with the psalmist in verse 1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty and let his watch care reign over you and let the love of God pave the way for you to serve him in freedom without fear. He's not giving us the spirit of fear, but of power 
and of love and of a sound mind. And with that sound mind, we can go against the lives of the devil and not be overtaken because we're going to be delivered out of the snare of fowlers. Third person. Him. He's the one. He's my refuge. Second person. This is what it looks like. He delivers you here in this time of day, this time of night. The darkest it can be, the brightest it is. No matter what's coming at you, he's going to protect you. He's going to watch over you. And then the Lord comes in and says, yep, that's me. Because you believe my name, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to satisfy you with long life. And if you have received eternal life from Jesus Christ, you'll never perish. That fits a pretty good definition for me of long life, being satisfied with our Savior.